Hey there, Jared Borman here. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that at the end of today's episode, we have some extra audio left over from our interview with Michelle, where we discuss some other quick topics. If you enjoy the episode, be sure to continue listening for the bonus audio at the end. With that, let's get started. You're listening to the Next Level Learning Podcast, part of the Keystone Area Education Agency. Welcome back to the Next Level Learning Podcast. We're lucky to have you here, and we are kicking off a brand new school year here in, uh, in northeast corner of Iowa at the Keystone AEA. And with a new school year, we also sometimes have a, some changes and shifting that happens as well. And from last year, one change that has happened here is that Norma, my previous co-host, has retired. So she is probably off somewhere warm enjoying her retirement. And uh, I wish her the best of uh, luck in everything she does in that retirement. But it's not really easy to speak about upper-level thinking by yourself. So you need someone, and two heads are always better than one when it comes to thinking and reflecting. So I am fortunate enough to have a new colleague here at the AEA. Well, not new-new. You've been here for a year. So yeah. uh, we have Bria Baxter as our new co-host, and so I welcome her. But I will let her introduce herself and what she does and all of that. Hello. So I am Bria Baxter, and I am a tech consultant with Keystone. In addition to my tech role, I am also on the authentic intellectual work, standards-based education, competency-based education, and the numeracy team here at Keystone. I'm really looking forward to meeting new educators and see how they are taking students from the lower to the upper levels of learning. So very excited to begin this journey on the podcast. And it's a fun, I mean, being able to hear what other teachers are doing and the exciting stuff that they are doing to get students into those upper levels of thinking. Uh, I, honestly, it's the most fun conversations I get to have. So I hope you find the conversations just as fun and, and meaningful for you too, Bria. Absolutely. I was involved in a lot of new learning this week with um, meetings and learning opportunities and just not being able to go in the classroom and try those strategies out. So I think that this will hopefully be kind of that missing link from not being in the classroom, but still hearing how other teachers are interacting with their students. Totally. And absolutely. I mean, it's 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 fun and exciting all at the same time. In fact, our very first podcast guest here for this particular season is Michelle Patachek. Uh, don't ask me to spell that, <laughs> but she is a teacher, an elementary teacher up in North Wind, North Winnishek School District, and she I think is in her third year of teaching. Yes, she, she's very early on in her career, right? Mm-hmm. So she is. Um, she has done elementary, uh, different levels, I think first and third grade, and she also does some of the tag stuff as well. Um, so she is a, she's a teacher who's trying to bring in this concept of genius hour more. And this is a new topic that we haven't heard on the podcast before. Do you have any background prior knowledge about Genius Hour, Bria? Yeah, so Genius Hour actually was invented, or I should say tried out with Google. And so they gave their employees 
time to pursue anything they were interested in that would benefit the company. And so they were able to dedicate 20% of their time in the week, I believe, to develop mastery in an area of interest. And so they were able to be very autonomous in their learning. And from this stemmed Google Drive, Google Hangouts, and do you know of any others that... It's it probably very difficult for us to distinguish which ones exactly stem from Genius Hour, uh, but the fact that a company like Google, huge, very very rich, right, was willing to say during your contract time, twenty percent is yours. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So that was pretty new for a lot of companies to even understand, it, and probably almost fairly like absurd. I mean, they were probably a little crazy to try it, but the fact that they were able to pull in so many new products with that time that was allotted and tie in their autonomous work to their actual work um, probably speaks volumes. Absolutely. And it also, I've heard about Google employees too, that their job satisfaction is very high. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it is because of this, the response to what they're trying out and they're always reflecting on okay how does this impact not only our company but our employees too yeah it's not just because they get to uh have coffee buffets <laughs> in their in the the floor level of all their uh um housing buildings and everything but the fact that they are trusted to be autonomous learners and and triers almost mm-hmm. so this is a concept that she's also trying to build in but michelle speaks a little bit as far as what her plan is for her students and what does it look like at an elementary level. That's the cool thing at an elementary level. So let's take a listen. And the way that we use it is we actually use it as a special in our district. So I was really excited as the tag teacher to take on all of the students for this project. And actually I ended up splitting it. Um, I do the lower elementary and a teacher named Pamela Dambeck does the upper elementary students. So I meet with them for half an hour a week. So it's actually technically a genius half hour is what I call it. But we slowly work through the research process. And I haven't quite, since it's early fall, been at the process yet or the stage yet where I can turn the work over to them. I'm still exposing them to essential questions. How do you write a thick question versus a thin question? So we've spent a lot of time on that, um, the idea that If you ask a thin question, it can be answered with a yes or a no. And this can actually be kind of difficult for first graders to grasp, Um, but they're learning. They're learning how to ask a question where when they ask it, if somebody answers, it takes them a long time to answer. So for example, the other day, the first graders, once they caught on to it, I loved their questions. They asked me, why did I used to be a baby, but I'm not a baby anymore? And then they asked me, why do people grow old and die? And why do some cats not like each other? And then someone chimes in like, why do some people complain more than other people complain? <laughs> so they, <laughs> once they caught on to it, their questions were really exciting. And I could tell that they were excited too. So just that scaffolding of an essential question and realizing that the purpose of education the way a lot of people experience it is answering questions that are given to you, but that the real purpose of taking control of your own education is to ask questions and ask them perpetually. And I heard this, um, well, read this tweet today where it was like Adam Grant 
talking about how, you know, what do great leaders, what do great inventors, what do great scientists all have in common? And it's that at a meeting or in a discussion, they're all asking great questions. And they're usually asking questions more than they are commenting. So just bringing all of that together and trying to get it at a level that young students can enjoy and get excited about. So what I'm hearing that Michelle's talking about is even though she has lower elementary, they're still able to come up with those questions. So she talks about how when they're just asked questions, of course, that's just basic recall. So that's the lower level. But just with those scaffolds in place, how they're able to come up with these questions that they're obviously thinking and using their higher order thinking skills. And this just reminds me of situations that I've had in my year plus at Keystone where some teachers will say, well, my students can't do that. But it's amazing when they're given the opportunity what they can actually come up with. Or, or when you, you push them into that area of thinking, right? Like sometimes kids will start here, but yet we as educators or facilitators of learning can kind of nudge them upward with some of those deeper questions. Kind of like what she was talking about with her students was sometimes the students will start with this kind of question, which seems like a yes or no kind of question. Now, it's funny that we that we have gene, talking about Genius Hour and Google because um, one cool tweet that I saw or heard about was, um, you know, if, if kids can Google it, you shouldn't be Teaching lecturing it, it on, in class, you know. So uh, the fact that she's trying to get kids to go beyond those Googling questions. Um, now, your prior experience with teaching is what, Bria? Yeah, so I was a middle school teacher. I taught math my first year, five years as a special education teacher, and a portion of that time also teaching geography. So, and I come from a middle school, high school English teaching background, so neither one of us have elementary experience, right? Mm -hmm. But I do have three small kids, and I brought them up on the podcast before, nine, seven, and five, and um, it's interesting. We talk about Googling and yes or no questions, so I get it's almost, literally like a game show, really, is what it is. Just It feels like being a parent sometimes is being on a game show where you are being asked rapid-fire questions all the time, and you need to be able to answer them. Well, I'm trying to get beyond that kind of questioning fatigue, right, where my students are, or my, not my students, my kids are actually asking me all these questions. And so I always have to ask myself, we have, we have an iPad at home. We also have uh, an Amazon Alexa, an Amazon Echo, right? Mm -hmm. So we have those devices at home. So if it is a question that they ask me and I say, is that a question you could ask Alexa or is that a question you can ask Google? They know that they can go and ask them. Not that I'm saying stop bothering me. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm done answering your questions. But what I'm essentially trying to get them to understand is that you don't need an adult all the time to help you with your questions they now have devices all around them that empower them to seek out answers on their own to a lot of their questions. But the question that she was talking about, like, why was I a baby and why am I no longer a baby? That really can't be asked of Google, right? Mm -hmm. So those kind of questions, I am more than happy to say, yeah, great one. Let's figure this out. Like, let's talk this through. What do you know? So trying to understand where they're at with their understanding and then moving them beyond that but but that can be scary for a teacher because they're used to being the holders of all knowledge and um, you're then taking the role you're stepping back and you're more of a facilitator and a coach of their learning mm -hmm. yeah and actually Michelle talks about that later in the podcast about how that was 
a, a big scary initial step for her and she even self-admitted I liked having control mm-hmm. and relinquishing some of that is is fearful for some uh, and it was for her but luckily she was able to kind of get over that in order to make sure that in order for this kind of stuff to succeed it, it's part of the process so once we got students actually asking those good questions the next phase in the step I, I asked Michelle I was like so well, okay so they're asking good questions but what's the next step in this whole genius hour phase so let's take a listen I'm hoping to guide them towards being problem finders because a lot of times we're told to be problem solvers in the world. Um, but a problem finder is a different type of thinker. It's the people that create domains. It's the people that create their own work. And, and it's, it's kind of the future of technology and online entrepreneurship and all of this. So the idea of being a problem finder, and that's to switch your question from you know, there's those broad, awesome questions that you can ask about the universe or about life or about death or about how far does the universe go? And kids get really excited about those, but it's kind of bringing it down to earth and being like, what are some problems that we see? What are some problems that we can find that maybe others don't see? And switching your question to be a how to or a how can we? Um, so that's the next stage, um, taking them to being problem finders so they can have a practical application, whether they want it to be, for example, there was one girl today when I was standing out at the bus stop, um, she just came up to me and she was like, we could make your skirt so much cooler if we put it like this and you had a pin. And I was just like, keep that in mind because maybe you're going to take on something with fashion, or there's people who have lifestyle interests, or you of course have your kids that would probably want to dissect a pig and answer some question for themselves, and I hope it doesn't go there, but (laughs) it's going to be um, a broad range of items. Um, You know, and some kids might choose to do a podcast, some might choose to do a vlog. Maybe they think they have a really exciting personal issue and they want to create a vlog with it. Um, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what they choose, but I first will take them through the process of watching me kind of solve some problems. And um, I talked about this with Cheryl Miller, our principal the other day, and I found this amazing book called Rejected Princesses. And um, it's a book that a DreamWorks animator made after quitting his job or getting laid off or something. And um, essentially he took women from history that were really amazing, but he turned them into these cartoons that are really highly engaging and they're really kind of funny at some points. So it's these women from history um, with a cartoon drawing and then their story. And I'm going to take them as a class and co-write a song to go with it. So to show my learning about an interesting woman that did something pretty amazing and substantial, but was maybe overlooked or rejected in the history books as, you know, the DreamWorks animator, Jason as his name says, like rejected princesses. So they can see how somebody might use songwriting to explore an idea and spread an idea even further. And then my thing will be that then I say, well, songwriting was the way that we did it together, but you probably can't choose a song. (laughs) (laughs) And that'll be hard for some of them, but I've just heard from plenty of art teachers and other friends that I have that sometimes when you show them an idea that specific, they all want to do that one. And you have to make sure that, um, you know, you, you kind of 
have the ones that you can have for a guided learning process and then turn them loose to see what they can do in a lot of other areas. So that's where it's going. I'm really excited about it going into the fall. I think it'll be a lot of fun. So when listening to that clip in particular, um, for me, the part that obviously stuck out the most was trying to develop problem finders versus just problem solvers. And for me, that seems like a very active process, the, the, uh, a process that isn't so much passive because when you're trying to create problem finders, that's a very active process to continually reflect and observe and look at everything around you that's happening and, and always be on that alert for what am I seeing that could be an issue. And then solving the problem versus just being a problem solver sounds like I'm just going to kind of sit back and wait for someone to basically point out to me what is a problem and then I'm going to go solve it. Is that Am I kind of interpreting that correctly? Is it an active versus a passive process? Is Do you have any thoughts, Bria? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that um, that's exactly how it is, Jared. And I'm also thinking, too, what type of citizens do we want in our future society or in our society? We want those who can find those problems and then solve them rather than take that more passive role. They're going to be successful in society and they're jobs. Yeah, and so like there was a it was it's uncanny the the relationship here cuz just on the way here I was listening to the Ted Radio Hour. I I you what you listen to podcasts. Okay, I yep. listen to podcasts other than ours, right? Yep. But it's the best way to sort of learn and make connections it seems. I love doing that. So the Ted Radio Hour today was all about citizen science and it was really fascinating cuz it went through these I want to say four different examples or four different um, TED Talks that stories all kind of align with this concept of these big issues that are being solved today aren't being solved by people with really high degrees and tons of money and anything like that. It's by a huge community of amateur learners who are just pooling their interests and talents together in order to try to tackle problems. It, it just kind of took one person to sort of find the problem or basically saying this could potentially be a problem. Is it the problem? And so there's a, they're using, again, the Internet was a huge change in our educational mm -hmm. environments where because of the Internet, all of these amateurish people can come together in whatever pocket area of the world to be able to tackle these things. So like one example that they gave was um, this mom who had a child who had this really, really rare disease. And the doctors weren't even sure how to really, if there was a cure or anything. They, they didn't know a whole lot about it up to this point. So she, what she ended up doing, this is a mom who's not a scientist, who's not a doctor. And what she did is she went out on the internet, found other families who had members in the family with the same kind of disease so she found I think she said there's like over 4,000 other families that that, mm -hmm. that contributed to this whole thing and so then what she attempted to do was begin the research together that's what they did is start to research and so they dug into scientific research and everything and the biggest thing that they needed was samples we need samples from as many people as possible so then they start pooling samples together and then she said we bought a research facility and I was wow. like, what? And so people were sending this re their research facility just samples, like blood samples and stuff like that. 
And so then she was basically feeding that to any other researchers out there, like the, with the high degrees and a lot of money, mm-hmm. feeding it to them saying, take this and go solve our, this problem, please. And so it was taking some amateurs and some pros and some people with high degrees to be able to try to tackle this. And they, she said, we still don't have a solution. There's still no like mm-hmm. pill for it or anything. But she says, we are a heck of a lot closer in a much smaller amount of time because we broke down the walls of learning and then pooled all of our learning together. Absolutely. And, you know, the Internet just makes we're so much more global now. The connections that you're able to make just by simply putting something out there on the Web. It's amazing what can be done. And you never know who also has the same problem or who has Mm -hmm. the same interest or who has the same passion or talents or whatever it may be until you make that scary step to jump out there and Mm -hmm. try to find it because when it comes to problem finders and and solvers Mm -hmm. it's going to take more than just the kids in that classroom and so to understand get them to understand that they are part of a bigger global society that can attack those problems and, and not just find them but solve them I think is a skill that is paramount Mm-hmm. to to push anything forward for our kids or just to empower them as a learner is really important. Yeah, so. and to start them with that, putting on that lens so early, how mm-hmm. lucky are they to have this opportunity and Michelle's investment in them. And Well, and the guy in the, in the podcast said, you know, before the Internet, everybody was told you have to go get a college degree. You have to go get the proper training mm-hmm. so that way you ha- you even can get access to the right people who have a greater knowledge than you. Mm-hmm. And then you're able to then access this. Ac- and he kept using the word access. Like if you want access to this big, big, big thing over here, you have to go through all these steps to get there. And it's mm-hmm. going to cost you money most likely. It's going to cost you time. And he says the Internet gives you access to anything and everything now. Mm-hmm. And you're able to – you don't – it's it's so cheap to be able to – go to that innovative pro through that innovative process now mm-hmm. at almost very little to no cost absolutely you think of those youtube videos you can fix about anything on your own if you dedicate the time and <laughs> i mean it's just there's so many opportunities out there yeah yeah it's pretty neat so i think this would be a good time to take a quick commercial break um after the break we'll listen in more with our interview with michelle and uh excited to hear more about genius hour and then also another concept that she talked about called biblio therapy yeah which is kind of interesting too so we'll listen more when we come back Keystone AEA partners with 23 public and 27 non-public school districts. This means 33,000 students and 4,500 teachers, administrators, counselors, teacher librarians, and paraeducators are supported. Did you know Keystone AEA's Media Library offers more than 140,000 educational materials for teachers, students, and parents in a variety of formats? This includes books, DVDs, magazines, and hands-on kits. Keystone provides twice-a-week van delivery, taking about 11,500 items a week to area school districts. Materials can even be ordered online 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. 
For more information, visit our Keystone AEA website at www.aea1.k12.ia.us for more information about our programs and services. Welcome back to the Next Level Learning Podcast. I'm Bria Baxter along with my co-host Jared Borman and we are interviewing Michelle Patachik from North Winnesheek Schools and so she talked briefly before about Genius Hour and we touched about the shift of the teacher's role in this type of environment. So she is going to be talking about how hers changed with the implementation of Genius Hour. That's an excellent question because I really do like control, like a lot of teachers. I'm a teacher and I really like everything ordered. I like it calm, but I have this dichotomy within myself that I love the creative process too. And I understand the patience that it takes for that, the chaos that it takes for that, and how it can, you know, incubation, the stage of incubation, how it can look like nothing's happening, but you know, some wheels are turning and something's going to come together. So When you mentioned the word facilitator, that's the way that I try to view it, or a resource, because students can have really great ideas and they get so excited when they're young. Um, But just needing someone to guide them towards those resources or even just to help them make a simple list of materials that they would need. And, you know, I'll have to be in contact with parents and pulling things together. For example, I did talk with someone, um, a teacher that was, she's a science teacher in Chatfield and their school did genius hour. And luckily she was the biology teacher, but her child wanted to dissect a pig. And that's where I got that idea from. I heard that this weekend. (laughs) And I was like, Oh goodness. I didn't even see that coming. Like, what am I going to do with, with what they come up with? It'll, it'll be a lot of tracking down resources for them and just trying to help them keep their idea within the parameters of something that can be done at school. Um, but understanding that they can always take things further with their free time. This is what the excitement of life is all about. It's not just one half hour of your week. Like you can do this at home and you can go through this process again. So in listening to Michelle there and in a reflection that I kind of had was there seems to be a key difference in definition between the word teacher and the word facilitator. And all the, we hear quite a bit the difference between student-centered learning and teacher-centered learning and how we're trying to, uh, I, would, I would argue, probably, beca- again, because of the internet, because students are able to access the lower levels of thinking so frequently and easily, that now we need to move them into the upper levels of thinking. And in doing so, how does my role then change? Because as a teacher, maybe we would kind of, I don't know. Maybe we should just define teacher and facilitator. Teacher to me feels like I am giving knowledge. Facilitator means I'm not necessarily giving the knowledge, but I am helping you understand where to gain that knowledge. Is is that what you kind of had in mind too, Bria? Or you have like a different working definition in your mind between the two roles? 
I do. It seems like, and I don't want to say that the term teacher seems old fashioned, but sure. I'm just thinking back to like when I was in school in my first couple years teaching, you revert back to how you were taught mm-hmm. and it was more traditional in nature. But I think the role of the facilitator almost is like a coach. Mm. You're coaching the students along and getting them to think more deeply and going off of their interests and letting them show knowledge in their own way that they can. We don't need them to fill out this essay question or mm-hmm. fill out this multiple choice worksheet. Yeah. It's more of it's more centered on them. Mm-hmm. And that and that can be difficult, I think. I think that's the most difficult part of facilitating learning is not mm-hmm. just willy-nilly learn whatever it is you need because educators still feel like there are standards that I that I'm required to teach and so forth. So it's balancing between the two. How do I still empower students with their learning and make it more student-centered, but at the same time, keep it focused on specific kind of content standards related to that grade level and so forth and it's a it's a it's a balancing game really and I I don't think I have the the best answer for that but right when teachers have all these standards that they have to address but there is there is that balance because if we're just having students memorize 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 then they are making those connections and so then we end up reteaching more the next year because Mm -hmm. it was just that rote memorization yeah and I think too that when we talk about facilitator as she kind of mentioned in that clip too was uh, now I'm almost like a a resources finder you know (laughs) I mean obviously we want to empower learners to go find their own resources but if they are truly stuck as you you use the word coaching I'm thinking in terms of like instructional coaching yeah when they're stuck I'm helping them go in the direction to find the resources they need or bring those resources in in order to make sense of it and be able Mm -hmm. to answer those big questions. Mm -hmm. And maybe the key difference that she's talking about is during genius hour time, those are your questions to ask Mm -hmm. without any kind of uh, preempting on my part. Those are your questions, whereas maybe the class time itself or the you know the traditional class time would be those are questions that we may ask together or questions that I'm asking because those are kind of questions that are based on big standards and priority standards maybe Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. I I don't know what that kind of looks like but yeah it really takes a shift in the mindset of the teacher Um, more of that growth mindset I know we hear growth mindset in education so frequently but Mm -hmm. if we want students to be or I should say have that growth mindset we have to model it as educators and Mm -hmm. what better way than in the classroom and stepping outside of our comfort zone and showing them that that is where real learning occurs is when you put yourself on the edge Yep. And I think what's interesting though is that some people may be listening and saying well okay 20% time if I have X amount of minutes in the day to be teaching, what is 20% of that time? It doesn't need to be exactly 20% of that time, or could it be a single class period or half of a class period or something like that? But the scheduling becomes sticky. It does, and it'll look different from school to school. So this next segment will allow us to see what North Winnesheek did to accommodate for Genius Hour in their schedule. Yeah, so it was built in like a schedule. Okay. So it's almost like its own separate chunk of time. Yeah. Built in like a special is what I meant to say there. Right. Okay. So how much, how much time is it exactly? I meet with 
the first grade, the second grade, and the third grade for one half hour a week. So just a half an hour. Um, but I have seen teachers that, while exploring a, around online, that have built it into their day. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting to see. So if someone's listening to this and they think of themselves as a classroom teacher that wants to try it, there are definitely resources out there for doing that um, with your entire classroom and leading them through it. And I think of that and I think of the efficiency um, depending on how much freedom you're given with your writing block um, or, you know, combining different theme, thematic learning that could happen, um, different themes where people could combine math, like, oh, for your genius hour, you have to do some component of math, whether it was, you know, for older elementary students, maybe figuring out the budget of what they need to do or figuring out a business plan or something like that. So the limits are really endless and you can tie it to the core. It's definitely in there. As I worked on the essential questions, you know, you look at under writing for even these first graders, second graders, and third graders, it's learning to write a really good research question. So it, it ties in really well. So when I hear Michelle talk about the half hour per week, that doesn't seem like a lot of time to be able to be that autonomous learner. Um, it, it almost seems like they would want more, mm -hmm. but can you actually have more time? Um, I know one school who uh, wanted to implement some of that genius hour time, but they were also looking to implement other kinds of time. And so they were eight period day. This is at a secondary level, I should mention. So mm -hmm. um, they were an eight period day. And what they decided to do was they took two minutes off of every single class period that they had. I think it was a 47 minute class period to begin with. So they took two minutes off of every class period. And then they also realized that every day they have channel one. And mm -hmm. I think channel one's 12 minutes or something like that. So they decided to, to do away with channel one time. And they took that 12 minutes plus the two minutes from any other, every other class period and they created a ninth period. And that ninth period was essentially that genius hour time. Now, I have no, I have no idea mathematically if that is in fact 20% of their time. Um, I don't know if the magic number needs to be 20% because honestly, I don't even know if 30 minutes is 20% of their, of that, of Michelle's classroom time, but she just recognized, is there any time? And I think that's the first question that it, it, even any time whatsoever, no matter how small it is to begin with, is, is worth it. Well, that's what I think, too. It's just like we know that this is good for kids and ev any little time is better than nothing. Mm -hmm. And Jared, you mentioned a great example of how it can be shifted to include time for Genius Hour at the secondary level. And another way in which I've seen it done is a teacher who teaches this was actually a 60 minute block so then they're able to dedicate Fridays or genius hour mm. and just to see the level of excitement in the kids they could not wait for Friday and it was just so awesome to see their excitement but then also see how she was able to she realized the importance of genius hour and mm -hmm. getting those kids in kind of with that inventor hat on and just another way to implement it. And I would assume that we should also mention this is Michelle's first year doing this. She is mm -hmm. implementing it this year. So she's kind of learning this stuff on the fly. But I would imagine that if you started with that half hour per week 
and you're going through a process of deep inquiry and problem seeking versus problem solving and switching a role from a teacher to a facilitator and so forth. That most likely, those philosophies within Genius Hour are most likely going to spill over into the rest of the classroom time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we might say 30 minutes is Genius Hour, but a lot of those philosophies embedded in that Genius Hour hopefully spill into other hours of other classroom instruction. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And you just think of those kids going into other classrooms, they're probably more likely to ask those questions and Mm -hmm. be those problem seekers. And I know that some people listening may say, okay, Genius Hour is all great and fantastic and autonomous learning and Mm -hmm. more student-centered and everything. But the reality is, as an educator, I still have to assess and I still have core standards to teach how does that happen in a genius hour time and so after the commercial break we're going to hear a little more and she even hinted at it just there at the end of her soundbite was the fact that we can bring in core standards we can pull this into even their autonomous time we can pull these things in so she'll talk a little bit more about that process in how do we assess this how do we bring in those core standards Mm -hmm. and i think that's going to bring all the whole picture back together for everybody to be able to understand how this can happen within the educational settings that we have already in place. So stick around, we'll listen to that after the break. Need books for your classroom? Keystone AEA has books galore for you and your students to use. Sign up for Keystone AEA Book of the Month program. All you need to do is go to the Keystone AEA website, and under Media Services, you will find Book of the Month. Select the grade level fitting your classroom, and each month, a box of 25 books will be delivered to your school by our friendly, helpful van drivers. Keystone AEA has books for you. Welcome back to the Next Level Learning Podcast. My name is Jared Borman. I'm here with my co-host, Bria Baxter, and we are talking about our interview with Michelle Patachik up at North Wind. So far, she's been talking a lot about Genius Hour and how she's been able to infuse that or at least begin that process of infusing that into her classroom. And she's talked about many aspects of it so far as far as the facilitator role, um, uh, being problem finders versus problem solvers and so the next step in that process that she's trying to encounter and kind of working her way through now is the assessment because when we talk about moving low learners from lower level thinking to upper level thinking the question then becomes how do we exactly assess that kind of thinking so let's take a listen well there's simple formative assessments that i do along the way and i also have a grander vision of different rubrics that I create versus just looking at what Decora has in place. Um, but for example, with the essential questions, they had to ask five about trees or animals or food, um, their own life, and then the weather. So there was, you know, this nice worksheet that gave them these items 
So to assess whether they learned how to write a thick or a thin question, there was a worksheet that went with it that I could easily look at and I could assess whether the student met the objective or not. So I don't have a grading system in place yet. That's a broader conversation that I need to have with the upper elementary teacher and also with our principal. So that's a good question. I need to work that out. (laughs) So Michelle mentions the hurdle that teachers face when they try to implement more of the student-centered learning. And I know in my experience as an educator, once I started doing more project-based activities, I ran into that. Well, how do I assess this? And I get that question quite frequently in my role in the AEA, which I know um, you do too, Jared. Mm -hmm. And it's just trying to help teachers look at those standards. They relate, and it's overwhelming when we look at a standard, or standards, I should say, as isolated concepts and skills because they're so connected once we are able to pair them together and then be able to develop a rubric off of that, which Mm -hmm. is complex. It's not easy. I'm not trying to come across that way, but it's doable. Yeah. And I think that's what you just kind of mentioned was the fact that we can't see each standard as an isolated thing. I'm not going to spend three days on this standard and a week on this standard and so forth, but we can package them. I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's at least in my mind, that's how I envision it. Like the box is this big main standard, but what other smaller standards Mm -hmm. can I put in that box? And then that box is essentially going to be the unit or whatever it may be. But Mm -hmm. in genius hour, it's almost like you're trying to package the standards as you go Mm -hmm. in a way where I can see students currently in this standard right now, but can I look at the other standards, start pulling those in immediately you know where she mentioned the use of writing and and mm-hmm. so forth and i know that's a big standard and reading of course literacy of, is huge at the lower levels as well so mm-hmm. pulling those kind of standards in i would imagine would be very natural mm-hmm. in a genius hour time when you're trying to do upper level thinking but then being able to as you mentioned the idea of putting together those those rubrics or those meaningful rubrics that help kind of guide some of the thinking but yet that's a balance again guide some of the thinking but at the same time give autonomy to the learners to be able to still guide their own learning as well during that genius hour time yeah still giving them that flexibility but knowing what they have to in the end achieve so then each day they have that big vision or that big vision Mm -hmm. there and then they're able to work towards it so it's not limiting their creativity because then they can show their knowledge in any which way that they choose or which is more natural to them or even fits the project that they're working on Mm -hmm. yep and then I also asked her because as I'll be honest with you as I was listening to this entire thing that she was talking about in this interview from the very beginning when she was talking about the idea of questioning all the way through to what she's doing now Mm -hmm. it kind of sounded like so I, I, I asked the question I flipped the role on her a little bit and said, aren't you kind of going through your own genius hour in trying to implement genius hour? So it was an interesting thing that uh, I don't know if she had necessarily thought of at that point yet, but it's but um, hearing her reaction to it and, and trying to make those connections was really cool to listen to. So let's take a listen to that. I love projects like this. Like I love open-ended um, opportunities to think about creativity and the way students approach things differently. And I also like to shake people up. I think it's fun to kind of give a student um, 
an open-ended project, which can actually be scary. And some people want to think like, oh, it's students who struggle that find this scary. And it's like, no, sometimes it's your student that loves a very straight, narrow path to their A or to their star, and it shakes them up. And I just love anytime you can have people realize that it's not about the grade. It's about you finding a passion for an approach to life and an approach to your relationship with your own mind. So I just, I kind of thrive on things being um, predictable and yet not predictable at the same time. Like I know who I have, I know what we're capable of, um, but at the same time, I've never done it before. And, and I like that happening to me. I seem to create situations like that all over the place in my life. So it must be something that I just enjoy. So I'm going to, I'm going to turn the tables on you just for a second. Cause I know that I asked the question, you know, it sounds like you're going on your own genius hour journey in a sense in creating genius hour for your students. Where are you in this process of having to figure this out? Where are you cognitively operating? I would say I'm at the same level as the students. I'm analyzing it. I'm gathering a lot of resources from other people. I'm trying to get to the synthesis level where I bring it all together and I look at how it applies to our district, our number of students and the abilities that they have um, as a unit, as a class, but also as individuals within that class. So I feel like I'm kind of still analyzing and, and standing back, just like they are, looking at this process. One thing I heard Michelle talk about was the focus on the process, that learning, rather than solely focused on the product. And I think that's probably why most of the, I shouldn't say most, but higher students or those students who are used to getting those A's, they struggle. They're used to the game of school. They know how to get that product of that A. But now the focus is shifted. Now we're focusing on that learning. So it also takes a shift in their mindset as well. Yeah, and I really just appreciate the fact that Michelle was so open in saying, I don't have it all figured out yet. I'm getting there. And that's obviously a direct focus on the process, kind of figuring it out as you go. And I would even argue, I know she says that she's analyzing or in the phase of analyzing right now, but I would even argue that she's having to probably constantly evaluate what's working and not working mm -hmm. as she implements this. And not only that, the thing that she's creating as a whole is the time and the environment for these students to actually participate in what's called genius hour, this thinking, this process and so forth. And so she's ultimately in this creation process, but bouncing back and forth in between constantly of analyzing and evaluating and creating this again or recreating this mm -hmm. or implementing this new thing and so forth. And so she's probably just when, when I heard her talk throughout the entire podcast, it, I constantly heard the idea of she is living in those upper levels of thinking where at which level it is changes any given moment mm -hmm. but it seems like she is constantly up there um, and she's striving to get her learners up there as well she realizes that's the ultimate goal and what a great model she's being for her students absolutely trying to model that process versus product and we even heard her say that yes there are learning standards along the way but it's not about the grade 
or anything like that. Um, I actually just had that conversation with my son the other night who's in fourth grade and he was saying, I got to do this. I got to make it this good. So I get that score and I'm (laughs) and trying to convey to him saying, Mm -hmm. it's not about that. Like, why are you researching this topic? Well, because I want to learn more. That's the important part. Focus mm-hmm. on that, not the end goal necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yes, you, you can, it's important. I'm not saying grades aren't important. It's important, but that shouldn't be your main focus during the entire process the whole time, you know. That concludes this episode of the Next Level Learning Podcast. We want to thank Michelle Patacek up at North Wind for lending her voice and her time for this interview. We appreciate all nominations for our podcast, so please submit one at our website at bit.ly, which is bit.ly slash NLL podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you at our next episode. The Keystone AEA proudly supports the Next Level Learning Podcast. Thanks for sticking around for the bonus audio. My conversation with Michelle was so great and I had such an abundant amount of extra audio. But there was one particular segment that I think might be of interest to some of our listeners. It's a concept called bibliotherapy. And I thought it might be interesting to you to go ahead and take a listen. So now I kind of want to dig into this this, uh, topic that you talked about already called bibliotherapy. Yeah. Explain more like what exact for me who has never heard the term before and has no idea what it is. Try to define it for us and then maybe talk a little bit about why it's been of interest to you and how because you said you're actually including that now in your classes as well too, right? Yeah, I have a certain um, number of students that I'm taking through um, bibliotherapy with the junior great book series in order to assess if they grow in empathy. And bibliotherapy, it's a really interesting idea. It sounds totally new agey. Um, and I found a lot of peer reviewed articles on it and they're generally tied to classroom management and behavior. So for example, you could read a book like, what is that David book? David, um, you know, somebody knows out there that would be listening like, no, David, no. Like it's all these books on the behavior of this young child. And what I'm getting at is, um, I'll have to look that one up for my own kids though. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah Christopher would know. She knows all the no, David, no books, but they teach behavior essentially. So some, some teachers intuitively do this, even if they've never called it bibliotherapy, they will grab a book at the beginning of the year that works on feelings or works on manners or works on how we treat one another or how we share. So it's this idea of combining literature with a psychological element that needs to be worked on. And that's its most basic form. And like I said, teachers will do it automatically if they see that there's a problem in their classroom. Um, It could be friends getting along. It could be um, maybe there would even be racial tension in the classroom. And teachers will know, I have an excellent book that I could read for these students during read aloud and I could guide them through the struggle they're having and they could look at these characters and look at how they handle themselves. So that's essentially what it is, but 
in a more um, therapeutic setting, it's a four-stage process that somebody's taken through through reading a book. So first of all, like identification with the character. And then you have like this catharsis process, this transformation process. So recognizing that this is a common universal feeling or a universal situation that somebody might go through. And then somebody comes out at the end of the process with um, application, like how they can use what they learned from the character and what the character showed them about themselves and how they can apply it universally to life. And it's a really interesting idea. And it seemed to have been really popular, probably like when we were in elementary school, like caught on around a few, you know, a few parts in a few parts of the country, but then somehow it just got lost a little bit. So when I came across it, I thought it was really exciting. It was hard to find um, books like that I could read on it. I found one from 2011, but it was actually like a reprint of something from, you know, the 1980s <laughs> and they reprinted it and added a little bit to it. But I think it's a really exciting process that could guide anybody going through any number of things. Um, if, if you have something difficult that happens, or if you have a student that has something difficult that happens, whether it be, you know, death of a pet to, um, you know, divorce, death of parents, all of these things that are sadly, like, they come into our classrooms all the time. If you can have a list of books or a place to go to find resources for these children to help them take the experience and instead of being painfully self-focused to turn it into a universal learning experience about the human condition, it, it's just a really powerful idea. And once again, like why not take the standards for reading and also insert a little bit of, and I wouldn't say that it's, you know, you don't want to use therapeutic because it's not that, and, and we're not trained to do that. But we find ourselves as teachers dealing with so many struggles that have to do with effective needs or with the mind. And it's just acknowledging the power of literature to guide people through that. So what kind of, how do students respond to this stuff? Are they very receptive to it? Um, what, what, what kind of feedback are you getting from them on this as far as their behavior once you take them through some of the bibliotherapy stuff? Well, the junior great book series um, makes it, pretty friendly to go through. It's not like there's any kickback or there's any like, oh, this is too, um, too like you're into my feelings and that makes me feel uncomfortable. It's, it's not like that. It's, it's simple analyzation of characters and putting yourself in, in the place of the characters um, in order to identify and like I said, and then kind of release something within yourself. And last year, the students that I had were very receptive to the idea of having conversations that they could relate back to their own lives. I actually don't know many students that aren't excited about when they get to 
relate something and connect it back to their own lives, like that text to self connection. And I haven't actually worked with the students this year where I've explained yet to them bibliotherapy and the idea that it is a four stage process. And I actually haven't made the decision on whether it's necessary to be that explicit about it or to just kind of have it be happening through the scaffolding of the questions and the way that we discuss the book. I don't know. That's just something to decide. Well, and I'm just asking because as I think I jotted down the steps, I'm not quite sure if I got them all or if I didn't have them worded exactly, but as I'm going through the steps and I put myself in the position of the students who may be experiencing this, because I've, I've done it. I've done it in classrooms where the teacher has led it. I've also done it just with natural, you know, fictional books that we read as adults and trying to apply that to our own life and so forth. I feel like, I, I feel like it's very difficult to read any book and not just automatically transfer it to our own life or put it in a way where we're trying to put ourselves in, in the shoes of one of the characters, whether it's protagonist or antagonist, who knows? But as I'm, as I'm listening to that, I, I'm trying to think where are students cognitively operating in that process? And to me, it seems very much upper level thinking when trying to not just read the text, because you said there's, you could attach some reading standards to this very easily. But then I'm also hearing sort of the other reading standards that I know are involved. And I don't know if they're involved in the elementary level, but I know I come from the high school, middle school, English teaching background, you know, author intent and inference and interpretation and all those words come into it, which then automatically also lead us into upper level thinking. Are you see some, some of that being at play here? I believe so, especially if, Part of the process is to have them at the end write through a character's eyes. So if they have to show some sort of product, um, whether, you know, some kids love to act, so they're acting it out. And we've seen this in social studies, too. It's really awesome when you have kids put on those plays where they're pretending to be the abolitionists or they're pretending to be like, you know, any number of protesters for some movement or something. It's, you know, that's creating. That's taking something that you've learned and then going through an emotional process and in order and in order to represent it the only thing you can do is really create some sort of product whether it's a poem or it's a skit or it's a podcast or you know a song whatever the case might be so yeah it's it's upper level learning yeah and that's what i really like about it is that it it you know it's not some of this kind of um, crazy idea that I'm infusing in my class. And although initially it may seem that way as like a bibliotherapy, that's just a, like, as you said, way too progressive for me. But when you bring it into the class and you are able to easily attach to its standards, and we are also able to argue that students are cognitively operating the upper levels more frequently with it, it almost seems like a no brainer and it has positive effects on behavior. Why, why wouldn't it be something that we'd want to include in the classroom? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Um, like I said, I was surprised that I didn't hear about it through any of my teacher training because it's such an intuitive idea. And I think anytime an interesting theory is something that we come across, it's usually because it takes something we already know, but it breaks it down into finer and finer categories that excite something. Or we're like, well, I was doing that, but I know I can do it better now that I'm articulating it. 